I remember being in the back of my parents' car as a kid. Uh, we would often make a long drive uh, up north from London where we lived, up to Edinburgh where my family was. If you have siblings, uh, then you'll know this feeling. Uh, you've both been messing around, then one of your parents turns to maybe your sister who's sitting next to you and says, why are you not sitting properly? Why are you winding your brother up and making it so difficult for me to drive? You can hear that conversation right now. And just as the other person that had been sitting there, the other person that had been messing around, you sit there just looking at your sister like, yeah, you're, you're the worst. This is unbelievable. Look at you. Making it so hard for dad to drive. Come on. But then... Thinking just for a second that your mum and dad had finished. You then realize in that awful, silent pause that the attention has now turned to you. But you, what on earth do you think you are doing? Why are you covered in chocolate? Why is there water all over your clothes? What have you been doing? Stop poking your sister. She has been bad, but you, you, come on. That sounds very familiar, and it's definitely a conversation I heard many, many times. Really, what we're seeing in our text here today is the nations, and then very clearly, Jerusalem being addressed. God's people. You'll see how Jerusalem desires and then agrees, sits there shaking his head at the judgment of the nations, then is completely horrified. They too have been rebellious against their God. Friends, it's the same for every one of us here today. If you're a Christian you too were once an enemy of the one here named as the Lord of hosts. This might be a surprise for some of you to learn today. that You are, if you're not a Christian, you are an enemy of God. As we walk through this text that Alex read for us, uh, the rest of Zephaniah, I think the main point for our time is Christian have hope for God will remove the rebels, and restore the repentant. Christian, have hope, for God will remove the rebels and restore the repentant. And we have three points for our time. They're really going to shape our time together. They are, the first point is surrounded by sin. There in verses 4 to 15, surrounded by sin. Then we're going to look at justice in Jerusalem First eight verses of chapter three. It's chapter three, one to eight, justice in Jerusalem. And then we're going to end with hope for the humble. Verses nine to 20, hope for the humble. So look there, look there in chapter two, the verse four beginning. Our first point, surrounded by sin. If you missed last week, uh, then we are back in this short book uh, where we have the people of God they're the southern kingdom here found in Jerusalem, and they are called Judah, this people. 
after several awful kings that they've had that led the people astray, uh, led them away from Yahweh and his worship, uh, we then, in, in really a book unlike any other in the Bible, God speaks through the prophet Zephaniah to promise his judgment so clearly on those that rebel against him. And so last week ended really just with a glimmer of hope that if there was repentance and Then as we turn to the rest of chapters 2 and 3, we are going to see clearly what this judgment will look like and some of the specifics of how that will play out. It's clear that Judah is surrounded on all sides with sin, something that Judah herself would uh, have not disagreed with. Really, we're about to see the whole compass around them shown, what it looked like to the north, uh, to the east, to the south, and to the west. These are all nations that have rejected Yahweh. Verse 4, look there with me, opens with the word for. This points back to those first three verses of chapter 2. God is saying that you should repent and be warned because for. That word for meaning because. Because I I'm about to act. Now we see what that is. And it's the Philistines first to the west and to the southwest. They're, they're coming first. In verse 4, their big cities, four of their major cities are named. That is what Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Ekron are. They've been named elsewhere as clear enemies of God. Go and read the book of Judges. And you'll see exactly what these people did. If you were part of the people of God, these kind of lists given by Zephaniah would have been incredible to see. Just their biggest enemies being named, being called out by Yahweh. And so intense, so clear is the judgment of God. Look there at verse 4. The land will become a desolation. Cities shall be uprooted This language giving us images of hopelessness, emptiness. Zephaniah's vision then moves to the coast and to the Cherethites and to the land of Canaan, this place that the Israelites never fully enjoyed. This is as far west as they can go. What about these places? So little will remain that these places will You see it there, just become grazing areas for sheep and for wildlife. I wonder if this morning uh, you've arrived tired. Tired of enemies. Tired of reading the news about perhaps the 38th mass shooting of 2023. Saddened by that incredibly quickly rising death toll in Turkey and Syria, tired of the war even in your own heart this week against sin, a battle that at times you perhaps don't feel like you're winning. I wonder if you've arrived tired today. I want us to take courage and hope in the faithfulness of God this morning. I want you to know uh, as we look at this text and all that's going to unfold that this around us, this world is not it. Coming, friends. 
promise of God is a day when the war, the various wars, those internally and around us, when the fighting, the enemies of God, the injustice that you've seen or maybe experienced, and the torment, all of that will pass away. All for his glory and his renown. Verse 7 shows us this, as does our final verse today as we look at chapter 3, verse 20. The Lord, friends, will remove his enemies and put their lands into the possession of his people. It says that he is mindful of his people and will restore their fortunes. These, for each of us today, Christian, take comfort. These all point forward Some of this to be experienced in this life, but really all of these promises here all find their fulfillment in Christ, in his victory and in eternity, in the new heavens and the new earth. This is not it here today. Here among this dripping judgment we read about, we also see the promises being made. We also see uh, hope being offered. It says, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is what God says in Genesis 12 to Abraham. Friends, God keeps his promises and his word is sure. We see this over and over again in verses 8 to 11. As we move from having just called the Lord's people to a life of humility back in verse 3, we now see the pride of the nations put on display. But what of this pride? You may not know the stories of Sodom and Gomorrah, but they were cities completely cursed by God. And so they were utterly destroyed. We have no idea where they were. Gone. Just dust now. Here, God is clearly promising the same for Moab and the Ammonites. He doesn't just say that it, that it might happen. He swears an oath to them there in verse 9. As I live. Followed by just a reminder of his title. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Let there be no doubt the one who has no beginning and no end, the one who, in whose hand the whole world sits, as long as he lives, the Lord will be awesome against them. Verse 11 says, he will be awesome against them. Just let that sink in for a second. The disappearance of these cities was famous. And now these kingdoms are being promised the same thing. Like last week, some of what we are seeing in this poetry really came to fruition in the years following this prophecy. And others are still promised to come on the last day. For us today, the, the Ammonite kingdom is gone. Having been a a huge Middle Eastern power and dynasty is just completely wiped from the face of the earth. 
all of this that we read here, promised and delivered by what? By the hand of God, exactly as he said. Its fields are now possessed by nettles and turned into useless salt pits. Just gone, turned to dust. I want to just pause for a moment at a word of hope there in verse 9. We've already seen it, this word in verse 7. This particular word, this, the listeners of this prophecy would have caught immediately. Kind of word that would have made them really just nudge the person sitting next to them during the sermon. It's used twice here to show who it is that will inhabit these lands that the Lord has judged, destroyed, and then delivered into their hands. It is the word remnant. This word has the same root. You can probably hear it as the word remain. It is those that will survive the judgment of the Lord, those that will remain. We know from here and elsewhere that this is the Lord's people. This is those who we will see more and are part of God's promise to Abraham that we heard, those who trust the Lord, that depend on him and that are saved by faith and who through them the Lord will then bless the nations. With all of uh, this talk that we see here of desolation and death, we see the hope that there is a people that will remain, both in the near and on the last day. Here it is those that are obedient to Yahweh, but then it will be all those that have known the Lord, that have received the salvation that is finally delivered, finally achieved through the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Each of us here is serving someone. You have served or worshipped something this week. You've been influenced by somebody else. And I'll ask you, in whose name do you boast or trust? Is it your own name? Perhaps it's your own kingdom? Perhaps it's the name above the door of that small business that you run? Perhaps that is your everything. Or perhaps you are here, maybe you're a consultant of some kind, but your identity is perhaps in your title, not found in the one whom you have come to consult. That is possible for you. Perhaps you are here this morning as one who loves to taunt Christians. Perhaps you come here to cause and to stir trouble today, to protest in some way. Maybe you boast in yourself. Maybe you boast in another God. Verse 11 comes action-packed there with a warning for you. The God of the Bible promises to judge and to act against you and this God that you bring or this God that you have created is promised there to famish all other gods for all other gods apart from him are false gods. They are gods that are dependent on you. That word famished tells us these are gods that need someone to bring them food. These are gods that need someone to bring them water or to provide them money. 
or to sit them back up after they've fallen over. It is before him, before Yahweh, this God of the Bible, our God that we worship today, that all these others will bow down before from all across the world at his timing, both previously, now, and at the end of time. There is no God like him. All gods are not the same. The God of the Bible, friends, cannot be worshipped along with other gods and is not the same God as Allah or Buddha or any other God that you've heard of. Only Yahweh, this God of the Bible, has all power and authority. And here he is declaring he will show the world that power. Concluding our first point is a sharp warning to the Ethiopians, that's the, the Cushites there, and then to the north and the northeast, just moving around that compass, the greatest enemy, the Assyrians. Forceful is the, remi- is the reminder there in verse 13, look there, that all of this judgment is handed out by his hand. It is his sword that will pierce and his hand, God's hand that will crush Just think of that film, I Am Legend. They just announced a second one is being made this week. Just reminded of the images from that film, if you've seen it, this big city, now completely empty and barren. Simply wild dogs and animals running around. Here, look at the text. So quiet will Nineveh be or other cities named that even, it says, the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge there. These quiet animals of the night being used to illustrate the the emptiness, the utter silent darkness that shall descend from the hand of the Lord. Nothing shall remain. The hedgehog shall roam uninterrupted. Everything there will be ruined. So rebellious are they, those who in their hearts, verse 15 says, They say, I am, and there is no one else. I am, there is no one else. How much have we lived, uh, each of us like this in some way this week? Perhaps it's in the darkness and the shadows. Maybe it's in your quiet place or at night as your mind wanders or as we plan our sin and rebellion. And it's there that each of us thinks that we are the I am, that we answer to no one. We who feel secure in our joyful pride. That's what that word exultant means there. The peak of arrogance. Something the people of God would have scoffed at. Just like me in the the back of my parents' car at the beginning to my sister. Man, I would never do that. Just shaking my head. That's what Judah is like here to the nations. We would never do that. Man, you guys, what are you playing at? Leads us to our second point. Point two. From chapter three, verses one to eight. Justice in Jerusalem. Justice in Jerusalem. As chapter three opens, that, that kind of shaking of the head that I just did, 
scoffing, really probably continues, at least for a verse. Is it Nineveh who is rebellious and defiled? Maybe it's Rabbath, the Ammonite couple, uh, capital, or maybe it's Napata, the Cushite capital at the time. Maybe that's the city that's being talked about. Within seconds, it all becomes clear. There is a city, like every other city to some extent. It is oppressive, does its own thing. It does not trust the Lord. The reveal at the end of verse 2. Sadly, this can only be one city. It says she does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. So clear is the judgment passed against the one that the Lord has spoken to. He spoke in the garden, on the mountain, in his word, through his kings, by his priests, and now by his prophets. Yet his people, they do not trust him. They don't listen to him. They don't draw near to him. In fact, the civic and religious leaders are even named here as part of the selfish problem. There in verses 3 and 4. In ourselves, friends, this is what each of us is like. On our own, we simply do what is now celebrated. Follow your heart. Follow your feelings. This is how the world encourages us to live. This is what your own heart desperately wants to tell you. That sinful part of you that causes all the damage that we see and experience. That heart of yours that is completely poisoned to its core and so wrecks everything. It is there that starts every murder, every divorce, every abuse, every bitterness. Every sin is found in your heart. It is there in our hearts that sin lives and thrives apart from Christ. Christian, you know your situation. You know what each of us deserves. Your heart without Christ, without the Holy Spirit, cannot be trusted. It all leads. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, which wert and art and evermore shall be, only thou art holy. There is none beside thee, perfect in power, in love and purity. We all stood just a few minutes ago and sang this. All of what we are describing and seeing is happening before, not just some distant ruler out there, but our wonderful, our holy, our righteous God. Verse 5 there gives us a stark contrast between God and his people. What should instantly scream out to you is how wonderful, how kind he is. These feel almost silly ways to describe someone so great. How well he knows our feeble frame and how gently he cares for us in our distress and in our dirt where he found each of us. We see there that he is righteous 
And he does no injustice. He is always true, always just, always love. Friends, that is who God is. In his perfect justice, he also reveals his perfect love. In his kindness and mercy, his patience towards us never fails. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. I beg you, just pause for a second and marvel at what this means. In his loving kindness, this holy and righteous God draws near to us and he sustains all things. In his justice, he deals with rebellion. And in his love, he provides salvation. In his justice, those that reject him are completely cut off. And in his mercy, all those who obey him will not be put to shame. He never changes. He never fails. He doesn't have bad days. His promises are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he keeps his word. He's shown this to us at every turn in history. And when his people reject and rebel him, he has brought them and the nations wonderfully as he promised to himself. Christian, this is our great God. Verses 6 to 8, we see this reminder of repentance continuing. You know who I am. You know what I've done. See all these uh, past tense uses in verses 6 and 7. You guys know this. I've shown you this. You've seen it all and you still reject Yahweh. Just a reminder there of their failures. Just a big mirror being held up to them. Yet, they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Accept this, sinful people, and you won't be cut off. See the judgment. Recognize the mercy of God. Call out to Yahweh. There we continue in verse 8, our Second point just ends with a summary of our verses so far today. There we see Yahweh's judgment is sure. And so is his anger against foreign gods and all who worship anything but him. There is a coming day when, like some sort of cosmic courtroom, the Lord of all and the judge of all, it says, will gather nations, assemble kingdoms, And upon them, he will pour out his indignation as his justice is seen by all people. So good, so holy, so loving is our great God that he does what none of us would naturally do. In all this rejection and rebellion, he chooses to give the gift of hope. Look there at verses 9 to 20 in chapter 3 in our final point. Point 3, hope for the humble. Hope for the humble. This section, especially verses 9 to 13, are really the, the heart and the hope of this prophecy. It is here in these five verses that I think we get a real glimpse 
of heaven. The clarity and the scope of the Lord's grace is unraveled before us here. We see that there is to be a people from far and wide, from beyond the rivers of Cush, he says. For the hearers, this meant unimaginable, far off places, people from lands that they couldn't even bring to mind or picture, people from places like Douala in Cameroon or Hyderabad in India, far off places like Philadelphia in the USA or Ibadan in Nigeria. People from Davao City in the Philippines. Those from Busan in South Korea. Colors, the cultures, the sounds, the smells, the singing and the dancing, the food and the fun from all of these places. But all for what? What is it that we're doing here today? All these people spared from the wrath of God receiving this gift of salvation. They will be my worshipers, says the Lord. They are bringing, it says, my offering. Friends, it is the same today. We are gathered here. You are here today. And Christian, you have been saved to worship. You have been saved for the glory of God. This is your reason. This is your purpose to worship a holy God. This is what we are doing here week in and week out. It is here. All of this is for your encouragement. It is for you to grow, yes, in your knowledge of God. It is to have fellowship with those sitting next to you from various different nations and tribes and tongues. But ultimately, it is all for the glory and honor of God. All of this is for his praise. Reading about God's faithfulness, experiencing his goodness, surrounded by his people, should make us hungry for heaven. Every gathering here that we have of Rack Evangelical Church, just a glorious taste. These verses 11 to 13 remind us of who we are called to be. Should not be proud and arrogant, seeing ourselves as superior to the rest of the people that are not here with us in here this morning. All of this It's everything about your faith, everything about your life is all by the grace of God. There is nothing in you on your own to boast about. Christian, we are called to be a humble and lowly people. You are called to be a servant. You are called to be a living sacrifice. Trust in the wisdom of the Lord. Lean on nothing but him. We see in this uh, whole section also points out that our speech should be different. The word used here is pure. You are to do no injustice and to speak no lies. This is what our mouths will be restored to in perfection. Mouths of rebellion changed to mouths of worship. 
I think this mouth of purity does not just mean that we get to, to do and say whatever we want until that time. Speaking our minds and maybe spitting facts are now held up to be just the most authentic self. Whereas in reality, we know this is so often far from the truth. Let me ask you this morning, does your speech, does what comes out of your mouth honor the Lord? Are you known for your true testimony? Are your words known as words to be trusted? Or do you have a reputation for deceit? Friends, to be known for your lies puts everything else you say in danger, including your testimony. To be known for your lies puts everything else you say in danger, including your testimony. Really, when we become Christians, when we have the Holy Spirit in us, our affections should change. Of course, this takes time, but our words and our actions, our thoughts, the way we process things should reflect this change. It's not simply because we have to, but because we are seeking to honor the Lord in all that we do. We should seek Him, clinging to the promises that He has given us. Despite the deeds of our rebellion, we, this promise is clear, shall not be put to shame. The end of verse 13 brings yet more comfort for us before our holy Lord God Almighty. Let me read an old song for you. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's an old song. King David. It was true for David. It was true for Zephaniah. This song, this psalm is true for us today because of the goodness of God, not just promised here, but fulfilled in Christ. Friends, those who once were far off have now been brought near. Those who were rebels have now been restored. Those who were sinners are now saints forever and ever through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We each deserve what we read here, death, destruction, desolation. Yet verse 13 beautifully, gently reminds us that we have nothing to fear. None, it says, none shall make them afraid. What a happy hope this is, friends. Christian, you are invited to graze to come, to lie down. 
I know you're weary from the world today. I know you are in physical or mental pain. Some of you suffering this morning or this week. Others of you just deeply sad today. Come, lie down, come to Christ. Bring all of it before him. Even in your suffering, even in your sadness, we can cling hard and fast to the eternal hope that we have in Jesus Christ. All of this will pass away, will fade to nothing. Much of it will return to dust. Yet God is worthy of our praise. Read and remind yourself of these final verses this week. As we turn to one of the most glorious songs in all of Scripture, I think. Look at verse 14. See the the same call to sing praises through the darkness, to lift high the name of Jesus when all around us seems helpless. As JC and Monique have done, as those of you have done who know deep distress and sadness these past years, for all of us who have some grasp of our own sin and depravity and our need for Christ, remind one another this week of this. Sing aloud, shout, rejoice, and exult with all your heart. Exult here means doing something with triumph, with gladness. We know what he has done for us, and we can praise him. The relief that Judah would have felt here, knowing that their greatest enemies would one day be subdued, would be huge for them. For us, your greatest enemy is sin. Friends, through Christ, it is finished. That enemy has been subdued. What I think is interesting in this final song is how we see the word fear there twice, following on from them being told not to be afraid in verse 13. I think that's because none of what's being said is easy. Judgment, pain, suffering, none of these will disappear until the end. But in our hope and in their judgment, there is a a call to trust the Lord and to continue praising him for his goodness, even though there will, I promise you, there will still be hard things for you to persevere through. None of these will disappear until the end, but we can Cling to Christ. Another promise here, this is God. If you've been a Christian for a short time, then you know this truth. You know the pain of loss and coming face to face with your enemies. You know that God never fails. You know that sometimes those enemies are in the mirror. Other times they might be within your own family. Other times they are in your own mind. Well, there are others of you who maybe the enemy is the one you work with or the one you work for. But with these two mentions of fear here, we also have sweet, gentle, again, reminders of the Lord's nearness. His presence with his people. He's always been with his people. 
I said, this is not just a local God. This is not just a statue in the corner. We come before a living and active God. He is never removed. And he has never abandoned his people. Crystal clarity in verse 17. We know that he is a mighty one who will save. With that saving, he doesn't just stop there. Like the perfect father he is, it says, he rejoices over you with gladness and he will quiet you by his love. Such is the beautiful safety and security of his love towards you, Christian. It's not just sentimental. It's not just cute. It is solid and safe. Never changing, always there, full of joy and love towards you. In your work, through your singleness, in the midst of your barrenness, in your suffering, in your weakness. He is there for you. This mighty and awesome God chose you and knows you and loves and cares for you. He isn't just aware of you. But he sees you. He created you and he has rescued you and he sings over you. He is the same with every sheep. Like any parent, any of us who've been aunties or uncles, such unspeakable, such inexpressible joy at the arrival of a new baby. Such is the King, the Lord God's Almighty, his love and gladness at your delivery. This is what he does. This is who he is. He is the good shepherd. He is the king of kings. This is the Lord, your God. All this, friends, because there is one who came, one who stood in your place. Was Jesus there on the cross who dealt with your sin and experienced the shame that you deserve, turning it all to praise before the watching world so that you, from many nations and many tribes and many tongues, those of us once cut off and outcast, now gathered together for his glory and his praise across the whole earth. In your life, you are called to praise him for in your death before your eyes. You will see his face. Son and daughter of the king, exalt with all your heart. Your enemy of sin has been cleared and the punishment for your rebellion has been satisfied. Your fortunes are now restored and sit waiting in an instant to be revealed.